listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Score to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. The book is available from Silman James Press and can be purchased on Amazon and from other book retailers. It contains 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to the horror genre. My name is Jay Blake Fischera. And the goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. I'm very excited for today's episode because today's guest, Donald Rubenstein, scored one of my all-time favorite films for one of horror's greatest and most respected filmmakers. The film is Martin, which has just recently celebrated its 40th anniversary. And of course, its writer-director is the late, great George A. Romero. Donald has also collaborated with Romero on the films Knight Riders and Bruiser, as well as wrote the main themes for the cult-favorite horror anthology television series Tales from the Dark Side and Monsters. And in 1990, he contributed music to the Tales from the Dark Side feature film for director and fellow former George Romero composer John Harrison. Donald is also a talented visual artist, poet, musician, and songwriter. I'd like to give you a couple of notes before we get started. Later on, you will hear Donald mention the name Mike Gornick. Michael Gornick was a close collaborator of George Romero's and worked on Martin as the director of photography and post-production supervisor and also provided the voice of the radio DJ in the film. Lastly, please excuse the less-than-ideal sound quality of this episode. Unfortunately, I had to interview Donald over the telephone, so he may sound a bit muffled at times. And that's it, so let's get started. First of all, I just want to tell you that I'm very excited for this interview, because not only is Martin by far my favorite George Romero movie, Mm -hmm. but it's also one of my favorite movies of all time. There we go. That's cool. And this year we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of it. I didn't know that until you told me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a real thrill to be able to talk to you about it, but also about your music and and, and a bunch of other stuff. Sure. No, of course. I understand. I want to uh, start off by just talking about your musical background. What got you into it? When did you start playing? Sure. Well, I played guitar for something like we're in the area of a year when I was a kid. I took lessons when I was about 12. And enjoyed it tremendously, but it was not beyond that a big part of my life. I did grow up listening to a great deal of, of varied music, which I think various uh, all kinds of music. My brother and I shared a room. He was older, as you know, he produced Martin, and he he's five years older, and he listened to a lot of jazz and folk music. Went to the uh, Newport Folk Festival, Newport Jazz Festival, which as like a twelve-year-old, I thought it was pretty cool, and it was cool. And he was just pretty involved in music. And then my parents had a library of uh, uh, more like uh, Oscar Brown Jr. and classical music and the like. And I listened a lot and I loved music. And I considered music to be, as time went on, to probably be my uh, highest calling one could engage in in life, really. It just represented, it was that powerful to me. However, as a kid, I, I just, I read a lot and 
I originally went to school studying poetry and English, and I did not anticipate studying music. However, returning from first semester in college, I found two friends of mine, Harlan and Danny, sitting at Danny's kitchen table playing guitar. And they sounded really good, and they had not played before they left. And I thought, man, three months, they sound good. They're playing guitar. So I picked up a guitar, and as was and is my personality, I just jumped into it full form. And I found that I had a propensity for it. Uh, you know, the dexterity and the musical background, and it became clear to me once I could do it, although I, I had invested a lot in writing at the, that point, and I was also involved, really involved in, interested in sports as a kid too, basketball particularly. But um, once I realized that the possibility was there for me to play music, I, I just went for it big time. And maybe two years later, I decided, to, I started school rather early, so... By this point, I'm only about 18, and I decided I would transfer into the music department because I was not quite satisfied with what I was doing in the writing department at the school I was at. And so I, I went to do that, and they didn't really have any rules against it. They had a, a conservatory at my school, which was sort of separate from the rest of the school across the street and sort of the classic old Gothic-looking uh, set of buildings. And... Um, I went and saw them, and I remember the head of the school saying to me, because most of the kids there have been playing since they were six, seven, or eight. You applied separately. You know, they were just little music guys, you know, by the time they got to college. And I remember him saying to me, uh, what would be interested in having you? What, what are you playing? And I said, well, I, I play a little guitar, a little folk, a little blues. And I remember him just laughing. At <laughs> but then I discovered that there was no way to stop them from me just taking all music classes, which I proceeded to do. I remember my, telling my father that. He looked at me and said that I was going to, not only was I going to transfer to music school, but that I was going to do music for the rest of my life. And he looked at me and he said, you don't even play an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that to this day. <laughs> He's a little bewildered by it. But um, I really did have a, and, and, and after a little while, I was pretty confident as a kid and I learned quickly and I knew music was where it was at, and I understood how to like sort of put aside certain things like sightseeing, for instance. I just didn't, you know, pay a lot of attention to it because there's so much I could do. But I found my place there, and I was accepted, and then accepted into the school full time, and as a composition student. And uh, yeah, man, so I I did that, and I learned a lot in a short period of time. And you know, I practiced hours, you know, six, seven hours a day, and. Started playing a little piano at the time too. So that's what launched me. I never stopped writing words, and they've remained, a, you know, a major part of my output to this day. Although music is fruitful, uh, I found that I, I felt more comfortable writing lyrics rather than writing poetry. I never thought I was really did, well. You know, I was so young when I started, but still, you know, when you're young, you think you know everything. So I was studying with a very famous poet, Howard Nemiroff, and I couldn't quite grasp the entirety of this you know, classical poetry, just the, the aesthetics of it, the discipline involved in it. And I felt much more comfortable writing lyrics. And, and that's what I sort of brought with me along with studying composition. And so, yeah, I graduated with a BA in music from that school. And by that time, I was just completely dedicated. So uh, after that, I was in St. Louis. And after that, I moved to Boston. Subsequently, I studied for a short time at Berkeley College of Music there because I was interested in sort of gaining the rudiments of Jazz, otherwise a classical school. You know, I was I was largely self-taught, even though I was at school. I taught myself through books. I had a great 
a great reverence for books. And um, when I was young, I read incessantly. You know, from the time I was young, started reading Faulkner when I was 11 or 12, and I just was really into it. And I um, and that, that sort of stuff. So uh, Dostoevsky, Grammar Punishment, and the like. And so I forget what I was saying. This happens to me when I get in too much of a role. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because I was working so feverishly when you call. But now, so, so I forget exactly. Oh, yes, I went, to, I went to Berkeley for a bit. So I was there for a year. But it, was, it wasn't quite satisfying. I wanted, it did help me become familiar with the, with the language of jazz generally, but I wanted out after a bit because it wasn't, uh, I didn't find it to be a very creative place. And my teacher at Berkeley, he'd become a friend and we were actually playing together by that time and I asked him if he might suggest some place for me to play, study piano because I wanted to play piano. I mean, I was playing guitar and I had played a little piano and as a composer, you know, you're at the piano a fair amount, but I, um, I wanted to play more, and so he suggested a teacher, and then I went to study with a woman named Madam Margaret Shaloff. Uh, I guess I was about 24 then, or 23. And, um, yeah, so she was, uh, she was a famed uh, teacher of uh, many luminaries. She lived in Boston. She taught notably many jazz luminaries like Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, taught Leonard Bernstein. But I had no idea uh, who she was. Um, I just, my, this friend of mine, Jim Kelly, who taught me, he just said, you should call up this lady. You know, she teaches a lot of jazz, whatever. And so I called her, and, you know, as a kid, I said, I, indeed, like to study jazz with you. And she was 82 at the time, and she said, uh, I don't really teach jazz. I said, okay, thanks. I was about to hang up. She said, I have taught a few jazz piano players, though, and then she starts to reel off this list, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty extensive. goes beyond that, too. And I said, oh, wow. That, that, then I thought to myself, man, that must cost a lot of money, you know? <laughs> and I, I was like, and I remember saying you know, over the phone in her little squeaky old 82-year-old voice, she said, that's all right. She said, if you're rich, we bleed you. But otherwise, I'd like to meet you, so why don't you come over here? So <laughs> I went over there at that moment, and um, you know, I had to go across town to get an hour or something. But I got there, and I was in Boston. And she opened the door, and she looked at me, and then the next thing she said to me was, you're too stubborn, I can't teach you, you know? <laughs> that was the next word for me, and I looked at her and said, fine, lady. But then she said, come in. And uh, anyways, I, I was lucky that she took me as a student after a couple of weeks, and she used to teach me for nothing or for $5 an hour. And I studied with her twice a week until she passed away, which was about, I don't know, 10 months later. So I started Martin while I was studying with her, as a matter of fact. Right, so I was a little older. It was 76, and she studied. She uh, passed away in 77, and that's when I was writing Martin. Yeah. So that those things coincided. So that's the extent of my education. Although I was saying I remember now that books. I learned a lot from books. I trusted books, and that's why that's how I filled in a lot of my education where I hadn't had the you know, a previous exposure to it. That's how I learned to write for orchestra and the like. I would just find really good books and trust them, and I just absorb it that way. You know, before Martin entered your life and you decided that you wanted to pursue music as an occupation, what was the plan? Did you have a goal of like what you wanted to do in music? Oh yeah, no. You know, I was pretty out there when I was young, and they sort of pieced that together. I mean, I didn't feel like I was out there because I was so focused. I was not a person who was focused on career, quote unquote, like many are. Many really great musicians are. I didn't have a big understanding of that. I just knew I wanted to. To me, it was about just doing something great. I was just involved in the, the idea of the work itself. And already at a young age, I was, to be frank, I was just motivated by <laughs> wanting to be great. 
you know, yeah. but not great in the sense of famous, you know, just wanting to be great, wanting to make my mark, wanting to do better, absorb what came before me and do better. That was a, a big part of my psyche and who I was. And everything I did was about that devotion, devotion to music, you know. I had a good head on my shoulders in a certain way when I was young in that I, I believed in myself probably too much, you know, as, as a kid, you know. So to me, it was about making works of art. Technique was important, without a doubt. But I always felt I had to have enough technique in order to build whatever building I needed to make, you know, to use, you know, sort of a metaphor. Whatever I was trying to create, I had to have, without a doubt, the ability to do it. But I didn't have to sometimes waste my time learning to do peripheral things that weren't going to serve that end. And that was my focus on, on making things. I just wanted to make things. And I just did the best I could. You know, even Martin's a case in point. I mean, I set out, you know, trying to do something great again, you know, be as great as Beethoven. Instead, I wrote Martin, you know, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's kind of that. And if I, I would speak to people, that's really my MO. That's what I was like. And I was able to live with all that. I would just, to me, I was always aspiring to be absolutely as great as I could be. And I always fell short, but I knew that I accepted that shortfall. You know, I didn't try. I knew it. I learned that over time that there was a lot in that shortfall and what I accomplished. So that was a deal. I just do the best I could, you know, and, uh, so that was how I approached things. I, I forget whether that answers your question or not, but <laughs> did that answer your question? I forget whether it was exactly okay. Yes, yes. So I would assume that it was your brother, Richard, that brought the idea of working on the music for Martin since he produced it. I was not thinking about you. Oh, you, because you asked what I was doing. I was not thinking about writing for film. I love film. I was already a film aficionado. Again, my brother was a great influence because he, he loved late night TV. And you know, I used to sneak out of my bed and sit behind his chair in the living room and watch all the stuff on Channel 9 and, you know, watch wrestling and whatever, late night movies. But I was not thinking of writing for films at all. I was, I was writing compositions and writing songs. And I had what I call the folk jazz group that was actually had a sort of multimedia been to it that I was involved with in uh, Boston at the time. So my brother called and he said uh, he was doing this film. And I, you know, and he said, you know, don't have a lot of money, which is true, the budget. Remember him telling me it was about $100,000. I think we ended up being 200 or something. And he said, I could ask, you know, the director if he'd be interested in you doing the music. I can't pay you much, but, you know, you don't have much money. And at first I said, eh, I don't know, man. I, you know, I was so busy, lost in my head and what I was trying to do. I didn't really think about it. But then he told me it was George. And I had seen Night of the Living Dead in college. And I loved it. You know, I thought it was great. Yeah. And what else can I say? I thought it was great. It was hysterical. The humor really got me. And, you know, it was scary as hell, too. But I, I said, oh, is that guy? Are you kidding, man? I said, yeah, man. Let me, I'd like to meet that guy. Sure. And um, that's where I was coming from. So... Richard um, arranged them. You know, they had no money, so they weren't, like, fishing for any 
you know, they had to find people to work on it that were both creative and, uh, but they were serious, you know, so, yeah, basically my, he told George, my brother, a young, dedicated musician, and so, George said, yeah, I mean, for sure, and George came over, I guess he took a trip to Boston and came to my place there, and that's the first time we met, and, that, and that's how I got involved in it, and then I, you know, I liked George tremendously, we really hit it off, and he, I liked him a lot, he walked through the door, my little apartment, and he had his coat, and I said, oh, hey, man, can I hang up your coat? He just threw it into the corner, you know? <laughs> I said, no, man, don't worry about it. <laughs> threw it on the floor in the corner, you know? And then, and then uh, we started talking about films. I remember that. We started talking about films, and um, uh, we just had a very easy, creative, you know, back and forth. It was, uh, it was fun. It was just fun to talk, and uh, I'm like that. And so I, I guess, then so that, we just had a good time. I remember when we got in his car, went to see some friends of his in some burnt-out place uh, somewhere, you know, somewhere in the middle of Boston. They were living in some place. We had to go through weird barricades to get there. But they had this pretty cool place they were building in the middle of sort of like, you know, sort of destructo zone somewhere down in the city. And we went and saw them. Yeah, and we hit it off. We just had a good conversation. And then uh, he said, man, well, I'd love you to, you know, write some themes or something. And, you know, we can go from there, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's what we did. So I began, I think he gave me the script, or at least at that point, a working script. I loved the script. The script was incredible. To this day, it's probably the strongest script. I was most never more affected by a script than that script. It was deep. The whole movie was right in it. You know, George was a really good writer, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Ex excellent writer. And um, the the movie was just in there. Everything was in there. And so um, I, I assume you want me to speak about this since you were interested in Martin, the genesis of it. Like you said, you originally started writing from the script, not from the actual film. And right. George was kind of notorious for writing some pretty long, descriptive, mm -hmm. dense, in terms of the amount of material that he wrote. Right. And clearly you were affected by the script. I was wondering for the Martin fans out there, are there any scenes and stuff from that original script that you recall? Or from that original, like, three-hour-long cut of the film that you remember being, like, really great, but they didn't make it into the final cut? I actually don't. It all became a blur. And <laughs> so many years back at this point, it was just, um, I just remember how deeply it affected me, the whole thing. It just, it just was, you know, a poetic, psychological, cultural examination. And, um, yeah, it was, it's fun. it was fun talking to George. It was fun being exposed to... George had a classic... What I came to know is the way film, many film people communicate, you know, and speak about the culture. You know, oh, there's this guy. Did you see that guy that used to, you know, stand in the mall with the, you know, three arms? He's there every day, you know? Yeah, man, he's there and he's got that midget kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, stuff like that. You know, he's always talking about just the way that they see the world is a particular sort of um, way I found many filmmakers and film fans and film, you know, people who are interested in film styles and films, sort of, um, the way they communicate and speak to humanity and get into things that are important through this sort of language of observing what's, you know, which is different than music or different than visual. It's a certain type of observation rooted in, you know, life. And he was great that way. He was just fun to talk to. And, and I related to a lot of of what he spoke about, even though he's coming from different places. I think he spoke very easily together about, you know, the world at large. Yeah. I know there's a piece of music of mine I left out, which I regretted doing, 
we'll circle back around to that piece after we get into the process of writing. So you read the script. Do you write everything at the piano for that movie? No. I had, a, I had like, sort of at the time, I lived in this, you know, classic sort of garret type little attic place. Yeah. And I just, I, I know, I didn't write everything at the piano. I could, by that point, I, I had a natural ability to sort of hear things in my head. So I would write at a desk or at a piano, one or the other. And, and I, um, so you just phys- you actually sat down, you read the script, and then you started to get ideas, and then so then you sat down and started physically writing it out before you even started playing. Yes, absolutely. Oh yeah, I, yes, I was. I wrote that was a, it was a, at the time. Even though, although I did do a lot of piano improvisation, I, I no, I didn't work that way. I wrote. I worked strictly from inside my head and writing it, the ideas down on paper. Yeah. Do you recall what was the first piece you wrote for it? You know, it's funny you ask that because I don't, I can't tell you unequivocally that I recall it, but I remember, I remember the feeling of it. I don't remember which piece it was. I don't even know if it was the theme, but I remember there was an off balance, had this feel that was just sort of teeter tottering on the edge of things. And uh, I remember that feeling. And I'm not sure which piece it was, to be frank. So, but I remember being excited. You're, you're, when you're writing, um, you know, either writing a song or, or music or anything, there's that, at least for me and I'm sure for many people, there's that, there's just this wonderful excitement about watching, you know, the emotional impact or whatever it is that's impacting you then sort of reinvest itself in whatever medium you're working in, my case, in our case, music composition, and watching it sort of spill onto the page. It was all very physical to me and very uh, tied. It was all just very connected. You know, the script, George, my head, my heart, my hand, the paper, it just, and I struggled with it a lot. It was a, not an easy score to write for me. And so I spent a lot of time up there in that attic room writing. And so, uh, you know, a number of months. So. Throughout the entire score, the violin is a thing that you use quite often. that main theme there's the female's voice how do you make those kinds of decisions of like what instruments to use oh they just you know it's it's, it's creatively sprung it just comes to your mind and in retrospect i think that there are so again it's this wonderful excitement that you might you hear you hear a female voice you just hear it and it makes sense to you then you go cool as if someone else had the idea and they told it to you you know yeah and you go yeah man that's a great idea how exciting i get to do that great in retrospect that's a long-standing love affair with you know solo female voice and still do it it's a record i'm working on now and someone's about to add just that to the record and uh Yes, so uh, it just comes through you, man. It's just like, it, it, it comes through you. I'm sure it gets uh, delineated or whatever by one's particular likes and dislikes in one's world but, and, and what you've heard. So many things, you know, that I'd heard, you know. And so there's something in you kind of germinating, especially at that time. And, and it continues over one's life if you have a creative life, but it changes. But there's something in you that's like waiting to be expressed. And somehow when an opportunity comes, it, at least in my case, one notices that some things that I loved get drawn into the process, like music that I love, you know. Yeah. It might not be apparent to people, but, oh, yeah, man, it's coming out of there. That's coming from here. 
And for me, I would just combine them all. And I think George was like that too. And he was very, he was original because he was, because there was no, you know, he didn't stop that process. It all coalesced inside him. And then he wrote down what things the way he heard and saw them. But on the, along the way, you, you sort of note that things are sometimes coming into one's vision, into one's field, uh, you know, from some history you've had with something or other. And that can just flash in a moment and be part of something, you know, and then that's part of something. But as a composer, it's fun to feel and to see. And so, yeah, that stuff just came. For me, when I hear the violin stuff in the score... musters up like an old country, almost gypsy, <laughs> you know, something yeah. that does kind of yeah. maybe harken back to the Universal movies or, you know, the the idea of the mythology. Was that something that was conscious or just something that you were talking about earlier where it's just kind of almost like divine intervention, creative flow? I would have to say more like semi-conscious. It's like you notice it and it's hard to say which comes first. Sometimes your mind jumps on it and goes, yeah. That's what we're, you know, doing. And sometimes it just comes through you. Me, yes, I am rather a, uh, a vessel. You know, like I say, I notice that to me, you put a lot into the vessel so that when the moment comes, there'll be a response, you know. Yeah. In a number of directions. But yeah, there is, an, uh, there is an understanding. Yes, of course, there absolutely was. But do I claim like really motivated credit for that? Yes and no. They, they sort of mix up for me. You know, they, I'm aware I'm aware, but I, I'm also pretty lost in, in that flow. And uh, what I did learn as a composer and as an artist in general, which took me a bit of time to learn, was that I learned that early on in my 20s. It's never to censor myself because there is a, an available source that is much smarter than me. And I think that's probably the case for many people. It's, it's just smarter than me. So um, while I may not consciously... Be aware, let's say, for your example, here's a violin coming through a money down. Well, is that going to work? How does that work? You know, after a while, I stopped questioning that, and it became apparent to me over time where and how it worked. And often, it's perfect. It works perfectly. So there's a part of you that's in that creative process that's working ahead of oneself. Uh, people have examined that. I don't know how to categorize it or characterize it otherwise than that. But so, but there is the, there is an awareness for sure. But sometimes, but there's, there has to be a tremendous amount of trust. And uh, I would say I use my mind more sometimes to, to peel back or to move back a little bit from totally unfettered, you know, creative response because sometimes you can go too far and then you lose track in the unconscious of where it was you're coming from. And so there are times in which I've, you know, in, in service of making things congeal, I might move away from an initial response as well. So it just depends. You know, the editor in you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's a big process. I mean, it's an interesting process. That's how it strikes me. The score is kind of this wonderful blend of jazz and classical music. When you record that stuff, I think I heard you talk about you used a bunch of jazz musicians to record a lot of that stuff. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, since jazz is such kind of an emotive art form for the player when you get into a studio with a bunch of guys like jazz musicians do they add their own creativity to it or are they going strictly by page 
little bit of both. In this instance, you know, we didn't have, there was not much money, you know. So it was like I asked a bunch of my friends who were really good players, and I doubt we paid, paid them much. So I didn't get paid hardly anything. But uh, maybe seven or eight of us got together. Yeah, so everything was written, but there are always there were places for improvisation to happen. Yes, and I've always employed jazz. You know, a lot of the great studio players have jazz backgrounds, but they're also as adept at reading "quote unquote" music. And uh, you know, any great classical player is you know, highly educated and highly capable. But I've always had a respect and just a natural tendency to improvise. So the trick there is picking the right people so that what they are going to express is going to integrate into the um, piece or into the whole. In the case of Martin, there are moments of improvisation for sure. Not tons, but definitely some. Some of the stuff, uh, like the attack on the the train at the beginning of the movie, gets pretty (laughs) avant-garde. I find interesting about talking to composers and and in your case, I don't even imagine that you consider yourself specifically a film composer because it's such a small part of your creative output in general. But, you know, now I've probably interviewed almost 20 of you guys that have scored films and I wouldn't say all of them, but there's a pretty good chunk of them that have a bit of a jazz background. Yeah, absolutely. Would you think there's something about jazz that lends itself to horror movie film scoring or film scoring in general? Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, make no no mistake, the great studio players in New York and in L.A., yes, many of them had jazz backgrounds and many of them could improvise. And it depends on how you approach things. George was a very fluid character. As much as he wrote things down and knew what he was doing, he did have a sense of fluidity in responding to the moment. I didn't see him film uh, much of Martin, but um, I know from seeing him film other things uh, that he was responsive uh, beyond the script at times and uh, when it served his purpose. And yes, without a doubt, like the player's eye, there is a certain, you, you sort of said it. You said it perfectly well. There, there's an expressiveness that's available. These guys could not, not only read anything, but they had the a history of using their own creative expression in the context of the form. And so you, you had a lot of interesting individuals with individual sounds yeah. that, you know, I naturally wanted to, uh, want to use. And I, and I have over, over the years, no matter what the thing is, the trick is finding the right person. It's not even the trick, but that's, you have to pick the right person. But in terms of the writing of the music, Oh, uh, then I'm just writing everything down. There are places where I left room for improvisation and without a doubt, and, on, and at the moment, I thought, well, I could. I was comfortable improvising, so I always felt like on that piece, Train Attack, I think I played some stuff on that. I, I always always felt like I could jump in and, you know, do this or that to tweak something into the place I wanted it to go. And there are other players that could do it, and I used them to do that for sure. So, and, and as far as it being, you know, uh, for I don't, I don't know if it's necessary. I, I don't know that it's necessarily. A, you know, that's particularly effective on horror films any more than it's effective on any film. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know the answer to that. I think it's something that many people use. I mean, I have a great respect for players. I have a great respect for classical players. Even the great classical players, you know, for me, you keep your eye out for, you know, someone who has a particular expressiveness if you want a solo. 
you know, to happen, even if they're reading the notes, you know. Sure. There's all kinds of interpretation. And so I just always had a great respect for, for players, you know, performers and what they brought to the mix and, and always felt that it was natural for me to employ that because of who I was and the way I thought. So I did. I think it was on the liner notes you talk about studying counterpoint with Richard St. Clair. Yeah. Ah, he just called, he just contacted me the other day, yeah. <laughs> and how that impacted what you were writing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. It did, because I was studying with him, and I was writing those, those background lines on the main theme. I remember that in particular. There's the descending figures that go behind the main theme. came out of working with Rick and spending time with Rick, and it was sort of a, a classic application of the contrapunct writing that I was studying with him, you know. Yeah. Rudel in the Renaissance. That in particular is something I remember, because I, I, I was writing at the time, so I'd show it to him sometimes, you know. Yeah. When I came in, you know, so it might have been a suggestion or something like that, or say something about it. And I remember those descending lines. Yeah. You know, this is now becoming a bit of a recurrence on the podcast itself, because since I wrote the book, I've gotten to know a lot of people that are very into horror movie scores. And right now there's this big resurgence of synthesized you know, style of scoring and stuff. And probably one of the more memorable tracks for a lot of people on the soundtrack would be the phased track. which is kind of a synthesized version of the main theme. I was wondering if you knew or remembered what equipment you used, because a lot of these people have become kind of gearheads and they want to know, like, what were they using for those sounds? Yeah, it's so funny. It's, um, it's interesting because I know that people have, people just love that. And you know why they love it? I'll tell you to be straightforward, because it was a very expressive piece. I played that, so it was a very expressive piece of equipment for me. And you're, you're always looking for places to get a little bit of an edge and, and to give something the edge it might need, right? Yeah. It was some kind of just a little phase shift. It was a phase shifter box, but I don't remember what it was. I mean, it was just a little box that just called a phase shifter, and it just would, you know, phase out the uh, sound. So when I played it, I, I liked the effect, and I was looking for that probably to vary the theme. Yeah, so those things are just, you know what, man, those are all, George is the same with this, just to be frank. Those are all just, you're just seeking solutions. You're seeking creative solutions. You're not trying to necessarily break the ground. You're, you're looking for a solution. Yeah. And if you're open-minded, open-minded looking for solutions, you get them wherever you want to get them wherever you can get them. That's the kind of artist I am. That's why I, the way I think reminds me also of my friend Terry Allen, who's a songwriter and a visual artist. Great, great songwriter. I've written a bunch of songs with him. He had a record that uh, Lubbock on everything. He's from Lubbock, Texas, that Rolling Stone called like one of the you know, best records of the top 10 records of the 70s. And um, he's, uh, in, you know, he, he, I just noticed when I hear him talking, because I know him as well. He's a very, very good friend of mine. And he thinks in a similar way. Uh, uh, we both, I think, 
Yeah, or I, and I, I think of him because he's similar, but I think George has some of this too. You just reach for whatever is there for your solution. I don't care what it is. I don't care about, you know, okay, so I'm about to write this thing. Oh, look, there's a, uh, you know, there's a sousaphone to my right. Okay, give me that thing. Yeah. I'll make, I'll find out if I want, or maybe I have to bang on the wall, or maybe I have to write this on paper. And then I was always trying to break synthesizers. That's what was my relationship <laughs> to them. I mean, it's true. I mean, not the phase shift. That was so early on. That was like 75. Yeah. Right? But then when I started using synthesizers in the 80s, because, you know, that's or because that's what, you know, budgets were low and that's what you could use. And they were, you know, some of them were remedial and some remedial and some of them were had a complexity to them. But to me, the idea is to fuck them up, literally just to p- pick them over your head and smash them on the floor. And see if you could pick out a few. I mean, that's a metaphor, but that's what I wanted to do. I tried to push the machine so far that it would break. And I figured there's some weird guy that programmed something really weird in here. And I want to find out what it is. You know? And so, you know, like some guy writes elevator music for a living, programmed this shit in there. And I got to, you know, I want to get to the place where the machine is so fatuxed. The Yiddish word just crazed out of its mind that it, it starts just offering up, you know, weird things. And a lot, and many machines would do that, at least at the time. And that's what I was into because that's what interested me was finding sounds that came out of that kind of calamity. Yeah. Yeah. That pushed beyond the, you know. That's how distortion came up in rock and roll yeah. and stuff. Let's push the amp as far as it'll go. <laughs> exactly. Right, man. That's right, exactly. And I've always had that tendency. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. You just want to, you just want something that's going to break it open so you're not constricted by the reins of that particular electronic deal. Yeah. But I always liked electronic music. Even in high school, I a, was listening to this guy, Carl Heinz Stockhausen. It was one of the great 20th century classical composers, but he did a lot of electronic music. And, uh, you know, Edgar Varese, Edgar Varese is another guy I liked a lot when I was young. The movie itself, Martin, it's so, beautifully dated it's like a time capsule and in a lot of ways the score is too there's just something about the score that just plants it so firmly in that time period and and i wonder if it's because uh you know i'm sure it's partially the equipment partially the style of recording but also that those tones not specifically like the physical tones of the keyboard or anything but the music then was you know like that kind of jazz had a place and a medium then you know there's stuff and and i and i certainly don't mean this as a as an insult i mean this in the best way possible i mean there's stuff like the tracks back to me And Marie. That almost, you know, sound like Vince Guaraldi peanuts stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, that's, it's. I don't know that stuff, but, but yeah. like, there was like this jazzy thing that was going on in television and films that just doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. Like the track Fly By Night. Pure like ballsy jazz tune. Yeah, I'm asking because I can see it going either way. But did you write that specifically for Martin, or was that just the jazz tune that you had been working on and it fit? 
Yes, the latter. It was a tune I had been working on, and I thought, you know, I was overjoyed because it was pretty, it was a, I was all composed, that piece. So it was like, man, this will work. So, <laughs> you know, this is cool because, and George was open, that's the thing, and George's editing was, was helpful. But also to tell you, again, just to reference back to what you said, I did not, was not aware of that, but I think late 70s, Gary Giddens, I don't know if you know him, he's a, you know, one of the great jazz writers, has many books out, was a jazz critic for the Village Voice for many years. And um, just, you know, again, that guy, Ken Burns' his movie, he's one of the talking heads. Oh, sure, yeah. He really liked Morton, and he came to visit me in New Mexico, maybe it was like 88 or 89, and I remember him saying something, and I took it as really a great compliment. And I think he, he's, very, he's a very astute guy, because he knew that. What he said was, man, this is just so indicative of what is going on in New York in the late 70s. And I loved hearing that because yeah. I think, even though I was in Boston, yeah, there's always things in the air. It's about two things, about your devotion and how deep you can go. It's about diving in and the fact that you're a receptor, you know, you're receiving all these things like a radio antenna that are going through you, you know, and that are around you. So, And that's a, that I take great pleasure in that, even though I'm not, you know, pointedly trying to put an antenna on top of my head. I, I, I love that there was a synthesis in the work which related to what was going on around me. And I think that that's, you know, very true to who I was and what I, what I naturally do. So I was, to me, that was a very, that was a great compliment to hear that he thought that. So that just is in reference to, you know, what you're saying. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I wanted to say that. So yeah. do you remember playing the music you had created? Do you remember playing that for George for the first time? Yes. That was a, I do remember it. It was a, I do remember it. It was so funny. Like I said, so I, he, the plan was for me to write some sketches because we still only know each other that well. But, you know, we just felt we had a great time. And, and so I got that script or part of the script. Maybe it was in the script. I don't even, it wasn't near, nearly, I don't know. So, yeah, I wrote these sketches or pieces, and then I got together seven or eight guys. Someone put a microphone in the middle of the room. You know, it was nothing fancy. and It wasn't at a recording studio. It was like a rehearsal space. And we ran through the things I wrote. So I recorded it. I don't remember how many pieces there were, five or six, something like that. And a vibraphone and so forth. And a bunch of the guys ended up on the score. And so then I flew out to, with a reel to reel to Pittsburgh. And I got there, went to oh, their office over there. And I went upstairs and I got there. <laughs> These guys, they're all the same, man. It's just, they, they're so cool in this respect. Different than musicians, just so excited. So I showed up and I met Mike Warnick and George. You know, someone said, oh man, let's listen to it. Like, as soon as I walked through the door, let's go downstairs. Because their um, tape player was downstairs. They had a little audio scene downstairs. We had to go downstairs in the building. They wanted to let go of the middle and walk through the door. Yeah. You know? There's like three or four of us, and I forget who, maybe one of the Google brothers, I'm not even sure, but George and Mike were there. And uh, we went downstairs, Mike chewed up the tape I bought. I was sort of nonchalant because um, that's just how it was. I didn't really, at this point, even though I really liked doing it and I put a lot into it, I was not, you know, uh, maybe it was a defense, but I wasn't that holy, you know, didn't matter to me one way or the other. I mattered, but not really. No, it didn't really. You know, I'd hope it I wasn't even thinking about it. That's, I just did it. <laughs> And so I just was sitting there, sort of like gave them the tape and they put it on and we played through it and no one said a word, nothing. And then the tape finished, whatever, the three or four pieces. And I think the theme was on there. And then I thought, oh man, I guess they don't like it. There's real silence. 
for like a period of time. I mean, it must have been, you know, who knows, 30, 40 seconds, but nothing but this heavy silence. And all of a sudden, Mike Gornick looked up and he said, it's perfect, just like that. <laughs> and then George said, yeah, man, and they slapped me on the back and shit. So that's, <laughs> that's what happened. They, uh, everyone was really happy. So we just went from there. Yeah. You know, one of George's great talents, aside from writing, in my opinion, as a as a fan and a person that has studied film, is George's a hell of an editor. Yeah, great editor. And I you know with Night of the Living Dead and some of his other stuff, and then later with Dawn of Dead, he used libraries, you know, sound libraries for music. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, he's not just an editor, he's, he's the sound editor. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about handing over your music to George and then him as an editor. Did he use it? in ways that you weren't expecting? George was a genius. We shared the type things that we connected. He was just naturally, he flowed. He always made me look better. That's what great collaboration is about. You don't worry about the other guy because you know they're just going to make you look better and you hope you do the same for them. But uh, his application and his use, I mean, we discussed them, but everything was, yeah, 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 man. <laughs> you know, let's go. And sometimes, and Mike Gornick was brilliant as well. And um, he would get in on things. George was a fantastic sound editor. He was naturally absorbed numerous mediums, made him a good director. And he, music was one of them. He was entirely in tune with it. He was really good at, uh, you know, if he didn't like what you did, bye, you know. <laughs> wasn't even, a, you know, if he didn't like what you did, he, you, you were gone. But if he, he was in, you were in tune with him, he was in tune with you. It was a pretty open book, and that served us well. Yeah. He was a great sounder. I don't know what else to say about it. That's what he made me. He made me look better yeah. and sound better. And, you know, he had great ideas about it. They just had a really good attitude, both him and Mike. It was just very creative, very dedicated. It was just right in the river flow of the process. Sure. And that's what we all, we were all dedicated to that process. And so there was nothing but our equanimity between us in service of making the film speak, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one would have a good idea than the other would. And you go, yeah, man, cool. You know, I know sometimes you hear the music in his movies doesn't quite sound right. And it's because I think he might've even had a tendency to alter the speeds and stuff, you know, to make them fit the mood he was going for. Oh, he did. Yeah. He was the same way. That's when he was the same type of person. He didn't care. He needed to get something in this spot that worked. How do you make it work? You know, do I slow this music down? Do I take a hatchet and cut off, you know, this, this strip of film and that strip of film. Does someone walk through the door that's got some weird voice and I say to, say, you know, say to Mike, go record that guy. We'll stick to, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, he, he was very fluid and he had no prejudice and he had a certain arsenal that he was familiar with of how to affect tape and how to affect yeah. sound on tape. And he readily looked when he couldn't find one solution at other places for the solution. And yes, he did that in Martin once. I remember when there's a slow down thing. Martin is dragging this body after the in that house, and um, yeah, man, as we slowed down one of the themes, yeah, it sounded really cool. So yeah, he was he just was a, he's an artist. He just he didn't see he boundaries were not really there. Solutions were there. Him. And likewise, when people are you know understand him, when people would ask, did you do that? Like you know why you know you cast a black dude for the. He doesn't see any of that. He's just casting the right dude, you know? He's yeah, just yeah. looking for solutions. And he's a creative, he creatively is very adept at doing that and open to doing that. And there's really not a solution at hand if you're open minded in that way. 
you know um, if you're clear about what you're doing. So uh, yeah, so he was he was a great sound editor without a doubt, and he he was very dependent on music to some extent for inspiration. He would edit when he didn't have an original score. He would edit to you know speakers blasting you know in his editing room, and that's what he'd be cutting to. Yeah. Now, earlier you kind of mentioned that there was a piece of music that you decided not to give George for the film. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a funny story. You mentioned Rick. That's because I said, Rick, I love this piece of music. I walked in one day. I mean, Rick didn't hear the whole score, but I walked in and I played this music. He said, you can't include that, man. I said, why? He said, he just thought, it's so dark. It's, It's almost like, I don't know if people should hear that. He was afraid it would, like, cause... Like death in the streets. <laughs> and I think it's about the only time in my life that I ever, you know, I was a little younger than him. He was my teacher, and I'd, I'd met him through Madame Shalock. That's how I was studying with him. It was a period of about six months. But I was like, oh, man. And I had a certain spiritual bent that I was sort of somewhat interested in. But I, I, I just thought, oh, maybe Rick's right. Maybe I shouldn't unleash this on the world. It was so, his response was so, um, he was so nervous about it. And I always liked the music, and that's the only, that's the only time I haven't squashed a piece of music or regretted it after a while, because it was cool. <laughs> you know. Have you ever thought about recording it now? I had it at one point, and then I don't know where it went. Now I, I lost some of the music, and this thing got lost in this well tower at some point. And I, don't know, I don't know where it is anymore. There was a point that I was, yeah, always looking to use it, because I went back to it and thought, but I'll never re- re- forget that response. It was like, that's just too dark, man. <laughs> no matter what the film's about. So George never even heard it. He never even heard it. It was a little cue. It was maybe like about a minute long. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it, it was related to some of the others, but I actually never, he never heard it. I just, somehow Rick spooked me, which was rare because even as a youngster, I was egocentric and not easily deterred from anything I wanted to do. Yeah. I guess I had some questions about it after he said that. But man, I, yeah, I wish I had it. I wish I could hear it again and see whether what it was really like. But when I did hear it at some juncture, I thought, man, I should have used that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I know you have limited time and uh, there's a lot more I'd love to talk to you about. I mean, you did Knight Riders with George, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about Bruiser. So you work with George in, you know, 77, 78 with Martin. But what I find really interesting about Bruiser, which comes out in 2000, so quite a bit of time passes. And I think Bruiser is a really underrated film for George. I mean, not not a lot of people talk about Uh it. Uh But what I find really interesting about you doing the music for it is I think that Bruiser feels a lot like Martin. There's a lot going on in Bruiser that is very reminiscent of Martin. There's the radio DJ thing, which is a very big part of Martin as well as in Bruiser. Right. If we say Martin is a modern retelling of a vampire lore, modern being in the 70s when it was made, Bruiser in some ways is kind of a modern retelling of Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of stuff going on thematically in things in both films that are very similar. So I find it really interesting that you did the music and there are cues in Bruiser that definitely could have been in Martin. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I felt it, I felt it the same way and it was definitely a creative, you know, thread that ran through both movies. And so hence my response, you know, yeah. it's based on the movie itself. So yeah, I just tell you, say, I agree. 
There are connections. How did you come to work with George on Bruiser? He asked me. That was it. <laughs> he had asked me to do things before, too. Like he wanted me to do Dark Hair, but the studio wanted ended up doing it. Christopher Young, maybe? I forget. Oh, yeah. Christopher Young did Dark Half. But he wanted me to do that. And, you know, he had me go up and see those guys. But they were just adamant. That's how, you know, a lot of times there's a business thing. You know, originally he wanted me to do Dawn, but then there was a deal with um, Argento that passed. And then he wanted me to do Creepshow. But by the time Creepshow came, he actually asked me if I'd score all of the films from then on after Night Riders. And I thought that's what was going to happen. But I think it was, uh, well, I know it what happened, he just he found me too difficult to work with, I think, at that point. It was just too hard on him. And so he went in another direction. Uh, I wasn't imbued with, like, social races in terms of mitigating my response to, to things. And um, I was sort of an avatar of art. <laughs> and so while George had to deal with a certain amount of compromise, I wasn't willing to. Yeah, yeah. I, I walked in the editing room and said, I said, don't do that, man. You know, just don't. That's not, you know, that's not right. <laughs> and I think I was a little bit too, got to be a little bit too much. And so uh, he pulled back, but that was short-lived. And at the time, I just, I was just very focused on my creative viewpoint. The service of the film, but still it was, it was very intense. And um, I didn't compromise that easily on it. And so there was, there was no tension per se, but he just, you know. Yeah. That, that's kind of what happened. He pulled back. So, but then, you know, he asked me to do Dark Half. But that didn't work out. He wanted me to do another one, you know. He wrote me this note when he did. I think I don't want to say which film it was, but sure. Wish you'd done this. I wish you had done the score, you know. Afterwards, you know, and uh, so Bruiser just came up. It was, um, you know, they they had a, it was a lower budget, so he wasn't really dealing with them. Um, and by that time, I had, you know, I had pulled back from. I mean, I did have the opportunity to be a famous film scorer in the 80s. It was there in front of me, and it was me that, that refused it, nothing else. I just didn't want to do that, you know? Yeah. I just did not see, like you mentioned, I had other creative aspirations, and I constantly offered rather radical solutions to the thing, going, you know, I don't like a lot of film composers. Not many of them interest me uh, to this day, and I don't dislike them, but I have no interest in the work for the most part. Sure. And so I had very rather radical uh ideas about things. They weren't outlandish, but they were not always well received. And when I was younger, I wasn't so good at explaining my point of view. As you get older, you understand that, you know, someone like George, we just had an easy, it was, you know, we just, it went well. We had a very fluid conversation and, you know, repartee. We just, we were able to, we understood each other. But um, I often, in other situations, wasn't able to really convey the why of things, which you sort of, you have to learn to do. But I didn't have that in front of me, and I just decided I didn't want to work there. I wasn't, didn't want my life to end by becoming a famous 80s film composer. Yeah. And so um, I withdrew. I, I just started doing other things. But, and the reason why this is relevant, I'm just not speaking off the top of my head, is <laughs> in the middle of the 1990s, I thought, first of all, there's always making a living is, you know, <laughs> is a deal, right? So you need work. And I just thought, maybe it was around the end of 99, I thought, man, you know what? I'm going to have two scores by August. I have to write some more scores. I just really want to. I need to, and I want to, you know? So, and then the next thing you know, exactly by August, George Rounding called me for that film out of the blue, and then Ed Harris asked me to do Pollock one after the other. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what happened. George called me. Again, part of the similarity to Martin Lays in, that, in where the budget was at, they, you know, I couldn't, I, I think I used about seven or eight live guys and a and conductor and the rest was synthesizer. 
Yeah, and I like that score quite a lot. Really happy with it. For those who are listening to this podcast that want to check out the music, you know, on the soundtrack, there are tracks like Down by the River. End credit for. That feel very much like Martin in tone. Yeah, because there is room to go there. That's why. I mean, first of all, there is that dark solo guy who is tortured, you know, and there is room to go to that place. And I hadn't really written music like that in the interim. Yeah. You know, between Martin and them, it just, it made sense. And, and you know, there are differences. I actually may like the Bruiser score better, to tell you the truth. Sure. So, like you said, it's as simple as that. The spirit of it was in the uh, movie. Yeah. And there was something in that movie about, you know, had a, a little different bent about how this guy's anger came out, you know, but it, you saw how he got bent inward where... Martin, you never got to see that. You see, you never, you know, you just he sort of came full formed, either deranged or as a vampire, with all that violence in him and that need in him. This guy, you saw him get bent by the societal pressures into that place and just get tired of it all, you know, yeah. and his, his inability to like, you know, fend it off of him and uh, establish his own identity. So. Yeah, there's, a, there's absolutely, and of course, it, it very much mirrors George's struggle as well. Yeah. George is a very nice guy. You know, I get the sense from this conversation that with Martin, it was just like, you want to write music, here's the script, write music. And in terms of a, like a creative collaboration in what you wrote, there didn't seem to be much. Did that change with Bruiser? Was he more hands-on with Bruiser at all, or is it pretty much the same collaborative process? Yeah, in fact, he encouraged that type of collaboration with me. Because number one, he was smart. He knew that the best, and this stands, I, I understand this from my perspective as well. He knew the best thing he could do for, for a person like me is the best thing is to choose me because I'm the right person for the job. Yeah. And then let that creative, you know, road run. Now with a good collaborator, no, even in Martin, I mean, he had his hand in the editing, although I did write everything separately and all ended up in the film. And God knows what was in the three-hour film. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you know, it's a shame. But uh, it was great, man. I know that. It didn't suffer from being that long. In fact, Night Riders, by the way, should have been longer. That was one time where we had that. So he got rushed because he had to get Night Riders to that thing in L.A. And it was at two foot. But it was a better film longer than it was shorter because he didn't have really time to... to to condense it and so um, um just so for a second just just for some listeners that might not know there was like an extremely long cut of martin that got stolen right yes disappeared there's only one cut music the everything was on everything gone uh was on on that film it was a three-hour cut there was never as far as i knew you know i knew nothing about the final intentions but that's what the film was yeah as far as i knew and then uh, where we went from there, I wouldn't, you know, couldn't tell you, but that it, there was only, for whatever reason, one copy, and it got stolen and never to be found again. In, you know, the, the editing room there and, and all the tracks, everything. So, yeah, it got stolen, and that was that. So, uh, you know, it's a stuff of legend, but who knows? Yeah, but so with Bruiser, pretty much he hired you because he thought you were the guy, the right guy for the job, and then he just let you be free to create. Yes, I think he was a little surprised at some of the liberties I took, too 
But in the end, he stood behind me and ordered me because I was in there. We were in Toronto recording the score, and the conductor was saying, he called me, said, look, really, this is too hard for these players. Too hard. Can we lower this? Can we lower that? You know, down an octave or whatever. And then I was about to respond, and George called me back into the um, control room and said, don't listen to that guy, man. You do whatever you think is right, you know. I mean, that, so he, you know, that was the thing. And at that moment, it was very helpful because it reminded me that I, that I put, you know, that particular, uh, you know, sometimes you make adaptations, but it was all doable. It reminded me that I did what I did for a reason. And so and we went back and, and we did that. I mean, I don't, every, not every single cue is successful for me in Bruiser, but on the, for the most part, I just really like, I like the score a lot. Yeah, but uh, I would like to, I don't know, the film, I don't know what happened, but in the event, it's, uh, yeah, that's right. No, he he used what I gave him, you know. But sometimes, if he didn't like a cue, like in Night Riders, we recorded this whole cue, and it was wrong, and I knew it was really wrong too. As soon as they started to play it, I thought to myself, "Uh oh, wrong film," you know. Because <laughs> I had it was from something I had adapted from a thing I'd written before, and I played it for George. I showed it to him. I I, I would show him things like in Night Riders. I, I gave him the themes. I showed it to him, and I, you know, just to make sure we were in. And he'd say, yeah, great, man, cool. And he really didn't. But sometimes if he thought something was this, he'd make another, or he needed something else for the film. He needed something additional beyond what I gave him. He would ask for that. So, uh, you know, he did that. But yeah, Bruiser was kind of similar, sort of a close-to-the-cuff production, small ensemble, and George went and edited the film. And I don't know really what went on with that because I, you know, what kind of pressures he might have been under when he edited it because I wasn't really there, you know. I do have to just let you know, and I would love to have some kind of insight into it. I have a friend that I can't even play the theme to Tales from the Dark Side 4 without them leaving the room because it freaks them out so much. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> so uh, you you co-wrote that with somebody. I was wondering before we go, if you could just talk a little bit about writing that piece of music. wrote that all out and my friend Erica Lindsay who's a um, saxophone player and a composer is a good friend of mine in Brooklyn she lived around the corner she's a jazz player and a, and a composer and she came over while I was right in the middle of writing it and I remember oh, I'm struggling with this you know little thing and then she sat down and we just and we ended up hammering it out together you know I don't remember much more about it than that we just went through it and we got it going and then uh, it was only meant to be a demo by the way it was not meant to be the theme. I'd hoped to, you know, I then I took the music was all written out in that case. It was a it was a show that was produced by George and your brother, right? Yes, but my brother George's name was on, but he didn't have that much. He wasn't as involved in that show. And I, actually, I wasn't the only one that wrote a demo for it. There were about I think they had about eight of them. Yeah, eight people did it. They gave you three hundred dollars to everybody just to you know demo the thing. So I demoed it. And I, you know, I played it all on a Juno 60 and uh, one synthesizer on eight tracks. I went upstate. It was kind of my little eight track recording studio. I went up there and um, used that Juno 60 and recorded all eight tracks by myself. It was scary. You know, I just, again, responding to this. So, and then, I forget who it was. It wasn't my brother. It was the first director or something. I don't know who it was, but they loved my theme. You know, Gornick loved the theme. And, and um, I guess George did, and they just were... Well, 
But George, I don't remember George being that involved. I don't think he was really involved. His name was on it, but he wasn't really involved. So I don't know. They just loved it. And so then they said, we'll just use this. <laughs> I said, no, man. You and I went through my usual thing. You can't use it. I remember telling my brother, you can't use it. Rich. No, it sucks. You cannot use it. I have to rescore it. I had instruments for it, you know. I wanted to do it the way I, you know, write it up. Because so. I love TV things. See, I talk about, but I, I did have a real background. I watched so much, and I had a great admiration for themes and, you know, for, for movies and movie music. And uh, I love certain movie music. I didn't, I was not like a, this person who's like, this is our movies. I loved, you know, Bernard Herman. I just adored him when I was young. And I, you know, I liked yeah. You know, a lot of guys, I like Marconi and, you know, I like Leonard Bernstein's on the waterfront. And I knew a lot about films because I'd seen so many of them. I just was not thinking about scoring a film. But I had, and there were some contemporaries when I started, like uh, that guy Stuart Copeland from the police. Sure, yeah. He was doing some cool stuff. Gable Yard, he was doing some cool stuff, Eddie Blue. And that, that's the stuff I was interested in, the stuff that was more like, you know. But I had respect, and I loved Henry, Henry Mancini and... uh you know, um, gold. I really dug. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of guys on it. Was there an attempt with Tales from the Dark Side to reference the Twilight Zone when you were writing it? Well, I definitely had seen Twilight Zones, but this was a <laughs> reference. I just dug themes. I mean, I didn't really, you know, to me it was like, this was no money. And, I, you know, it ended up, my brother was right, it ended up paying all right over the years, you know. It ended up, we ended up doing okay over the years. And now it's this point where we have no money, you know, just, you do it, you know, who knows what happens. But I love themes. I wouldn't say it referenced, it didn't reference the Twilight Zone, but I was well aware of, like I spoke at the very beginning of our conversation, that there are great movie themes out there, and I relish the idea of taking a shot at it. Sure. I mean, TV themes. Yeah, yeah. I love, you know, tons of them. So, yeah, that's what I was about. I wanted to write it something great and do the best I could. And that's why I was so upset when they took my little Juno 8, uh, <laughs> my Juno 60 demo and it ended up on the air. And when I was screaming all the way to the dubbing room, I was just like, oh yeah. man, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad people like it so much and I, I'm, I, I'm glad they like it so much. And, and maybe it wouldn't have been any better if I had gone and, and realized that, you know, I just wanted, to, I just had a score for instruments and a synthesizer. I wanted to live next to those other ones in terms of its production value. Basically. Sure, yeah. You know, yeah. Before we go, can I just ask you, because I think this would be an interesting album for people to check out. You have an album called Dawn Imagined. Yes. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about it because I think people might get the wrong idea about it, and but I think it's pretty great. So I'd love to hear how it originated. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Blake. To put it this way, I'm very happy with that record. Robin Esterhammer, what a great guy with Perseverance Records, what a dedicated soul. You know, they, they put out a number of my records. And so don't imagine the reason why it can be somewhat misleading is that it was originally, I had told Robin, which was true because George had asked me to write some themes for Dawn of the Dead before he had, because he wanted, we wanted to work together again before the thing with Argento happened, which then that was 
that wasn't even a choice. I mean, it ended up being great for the film. For the listeners that may not know, you're referring to the fact that Argento had secured financing for Dawn of the Dead and also the European distribution rights, and he brought in Goblin to do the soundtrack as part of that deal. Yes, he wanted me to do it, but then that deal, you know, demanded that they do the score. So that's how that happened. It ended up to be a, you know, a happy, a happy occurrence. But George originally asked me to sketch out some themes. So that's what I did. I, I wrote some themes, just some, you know, I don't know, five or six themes based on, I forget what it was based on, to be honest, whether it was based on, a, I don't know, it wasn't based on a film, but some opening script or him telling me what it was about or knowing Night of Living Dead, whatever, the idea. But that's what I did. So I wrote a number of themes. And when Robin, I told Robin that, he said, oh man, well, we could do a record based on that. Well, here's the deal. It was not, because um, I saw someone write, write a review at Amazon and said it wasn't what they expected because it's, it's sold or it's advertised as being, you know, born of the themes for Dawn of the Dead, unused themes. Yeah, like a rejected score or something. Yeah, as if, if, but I didn't write them to the film or who even knows how much the film changed after I wrote it because it was pretty early on that I wrote those things, right? You know, I don't even think there was a full script. So in any event, and, and beyond that, what I did with those themes was use them in different contexts after that. I created, I used it for different pieces, and some electronic pieces for a project and a record, and then some, uh, a piece of chamber orchestra that I wrote. And so those themes were absolutely in there, and I hear their, refer- their re- relevance and reference to Dawn of the Dead, but I'm not sure everyone will hear that. Sure. And then there weren't that many of them, so I filled out the rest of the record with some other other work that I had because I like just juxtaposing, and I write a lot of songs as well. So I like, especially at a certain point, I like using juxtaposition a lot. So I, you know, made my own particular amalgam of works that I had that I thought, you know, made up a whole, and I'm very happy with how it came out. Very happy with it. Quite like it, and so. But I think what you're referring to is people look at it and says, "Don't imagine they'll expect." How would this play against the film? Well, it was never meant to. You know, I was taken into a very different direction. So, uh, but it was marketed as that because you know Robin thought it would help sell. So basically, it's music that you originally conceptualized when you originally started talking about doing it, but now it's become its own thing. Yes, it became a totally different thing, and it was never even written to the film. Yeah. I don't remember what it was written to. Maybe George <laughs> telling me about the film. Sure. You know, if you want, you can get started on it now. And I was always up for that. I'd rather spend more time, make less money, you know, get something right. So that's what I was into. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's a record I like. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting record. Thank you. Even not knowing exactly what it was when I started listening to it, I, I you know, I think you, you can. I, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a musician and an artist. It's easy for me to kind of take a step back and see that this was, you know, some kind of, it has a creative connection, but isn't necessarily literally music for Dawn of the Dead. Yes, but it does have an absolute connection to it because that's where those themes were originated from. And um, yeah, yeah, I think that I think the connection is definitely there, and it's interesting in that way. But it was different; it would have been a different application. And who knows, man? Who knows if I saw the film, if we would have gone in a different direction? Anyways, I have no idea. Is there anything about Martin now, forty years later, that on reflection, anything else you want to say? Looking back on it on hindsight, one thing that does come to mind, which resonates, and I've mentioned this before, was George's rather brilliant answer about what Martin really was about 
and it's about just not to diminish its many references and how it reverberates in, in so many ways and, uh, societally. But I remember him saying to me, and I think he wrote this somewhere sometime, maybe even wrote it on a liner note. I don't know. But he said to me, you know, he said at some point after the fact, after he made it, he said, you know, Martin, the thing about Martin that's so scary is that he has us all figured out. You know, he understands all of us, and we don't understand him at all. And I think that's a very profound statement, meaning that violence, you know, emanating from a person who, who lives, and then the world not really being able to discern its presence and respond to its presence and, and be aware of it and how it sort of generates from inside. And I mean, some of that in everybody and how, you know, you deal with that. I just thought that was so interesting. And that I think that was in many ways at the root of George's effort in the film, you know, how that turning that violence, inside violence out and how that violence sees us, but we don't see them because it's, it's thirsty, you know, it's thirsty. It's, it's lurking and thirsty, but we're not looking at it closely enough to see it's there. I think that's an admonition, that's a warning that's well worth taking in everyday life. So that's what came to mind when you said that. Well, this was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Donald. I really appreciate you making time for it. Thanks, Blake. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm going to take a nap now, man. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, no, it was fun. It's it's interesting. Sometimes I think, what else would I have to say about all these things? But it's fun talking about them. And I I hope that, I mean, in my mind, part of it is just wanting to convey, I hope that someone gets something creative out of what I say. Maybe, you know, inside or whatever. That's, That's my intent. I think a lot of what you said, creative people will definitely connect to. And I think it's cool. I mean, that's where I, I wrote the book was, I mean, I love talking to creative people right. about their art and how they do it. This is exactly the kind of thing I like talking about. I want to hear your process, how it works, where does the where did the ideas come from? So in my book, you delivered, Donald. Thank you. <laughs> yes, no, I feel good about it. I enjoy talking. I feel good. But that's I was just sort of saying that's my intent. You know, that's a, the best reason to talk is to hopefully you give someone something somewhere. I, of course, need to thank Donald Rubenstein for giving so much of his time and knowledge to the show. Having him on the podcast was a real treat for me, and I had a blast speaking with him about his music. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will be a great help in raising awareness for the show and in getting the podcast recommended to potential listeners. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts, and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Donald at donaldrubensteinart.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this podcast were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. 
Today we discuss the soundtracks for the film Martin, which is available on vinyl LP from the Shipshore Phonograph Company and on CD from both Level Green and Perseverance Records, and Bruiser, which can be found on CD from Black Starlight Records. Also, you can find Donald's album, Dawn Imagined, on CD from Perseverance Records. Thank you so much for listening to Score to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Music